0: Hello I'm Stephen and I'm Helen and on this week's New Statesman podcast
1: we report back from Labour Party conference. What was the mood like? What was discussed? What policies are in the offing?
0: We discussed whether or not we thought Jeremy Corbyn's speech was a flop Or fantastic.
1: I think that those are the two options, basically. And finally, you ask us, is Labour right to wargame a run on the pound? So, Stephen, you're back slightly later than me from Brighton. I made it until Monday evening uh, in the Palace of... I think it's quite good seaside. I'm just gonna put this out there. I know you said last week it wasn't, but I I like one of the things that's nice about having a Labour conference in Brighton is that weirdly September is a month is often a lot warmer and nicer than you think. So I arrived in the afternoon of well, actually I arrived first thing on Sunday morning to do the Sunday politics and that was a it was a really beautiful day and I felt my heart was lifted.
0: So Brighton is, is, is lovely and the weather was lovely and the, the sea is lovely, but to my mind and I know that my it's not a proper seaside reaction.
1: Shingle is bullshit, that's what you're saying.
0: Well, yeah, I just basically, like, for it to be a seaside, there's got to be, you know, a beach. Whereas, really, there's buildings, you know, nice buildings and some nice cafes, and then there's sea, right? There's, you know, there's... (laughs) The essential ingredient to me of a seaside is not it's a some side here. Yeah, it's the side, right? Like, okay.
1: Yeah. But the other thing that was is that I guess it's a kind of pathetic fallacy. I was surprised by how nice the atmosphere was. Yes, there were times when I think it tipped into a slightly weird triumphalism from a party that did not actually win in June. But it's one of those things that you kind of step off the you know Facebook, Twitter echo chamber, and you remember that most Labour activists, you know, they, I think you've talked about this before. You know, the kind of median Corbyn supporting activist is just so much nicer, more pleasant, more open to, you know, there's not... Yes, they might cheer the anti-mainstream media lines in the speech, and there were a lot of those this year again, but they're not kind of frothingly hate, hating of journalists in the way that you would perhaps get that impression off something like Twitter.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also kind of... The problem, of course, well, I mean, with the internet, but life in general, is that one remembers exceptional events and striking events. I, in the case of Twitter, rudeness and unpleasantness.
1: I think that's true, but I also think there's a really powerful crowd effect. Like, if you're chairing a fringe and someone says something rude and unpleasant, actually, you get the sense from everyone else in the room of, "Well, that's a bit not on." We've all come here, you know, and these people are giving up their time, yeah. which is using what you know. You just don't get that kind of even if sort of silent wave of disapproval that you kind of get in a in a in a in a real life space. Anyway, enough of me blathering on about um the fact that everyone was surprisingly pleasant to me, and I didn't buy any. There was quite a lot of Corbin merch, wasn't there? You mentioned this in your column. Yes, I
0: did. Several party staffers have complained, not in the yeah, kind of a few, but have kind of said like it is a shame that shame that they have not trademarked Corbyn's likeness because a great deal of Corbyn merch was selling like hotcakes. Obviously, the official Labour Party store sells
1: for the many, not the few, um, a
0: great number of, and also like oh yeah, they sell a Corbyn tote bag, yada yada. So they also are on the kind of Corbyn merch. The thing only thing
1: I was these. tempted by was there was a crazy cat lady boutique that said I'm voting El Gato. And that was the only one that nearly tempted me. But then I thought, look at yourself.
0: <laughs> but the thing is... <laughs>
1: what are you doing?
0: But yeah, so there's a feeling in Labour's fundraising team. It's honestly, they know that there are lots of reasons why Jeremy Corbyn would not permit them to start issuing cease and desist letters to... kind of sort of but like (laughs) yeah there's a a Corbyn Toby jug and they're just like well you know we wanted to do a Toby jug but yeah there was um I was talking with some uh, Labour MPs and peers late last night about it it's definitely the the kind of most happy festival atmosphere of a conference I can remember covering and they kind of thought in the last time the Labour conference had that kind of optimism and get up and go about it 2007, Gordon Brown's first conference as leader. Speculation that he was going to, you know, use his large opinion poll lead to go for an early election. Is that the one that then
1: got crushed by Osborne standing up a week later and announcing the inheritance tax cut? Yeah. Ah, oh, okay. Um, well, well let's look forward to next week's Tory conference. Although I suspect that that will be as dominated by Brexit as this one has been.
0: I think more so. I mean, the slight weirdness of, of this Labour Party conference was you have this thing where people would keep asking me how it was being covered because obviously they're too busy to actually check it themselves. So they might have read my free morning email, uh, Morning Call, which you can subscribe to on the website. They might have been reading that, but they weren't... People say, oh, well, how is it being covered elsewhere? And I go, well, it's not really, to be honest. The, The main story is the disintegration of the Tory party. And I I think that disintegration will be thrown into still sharper relief in their own conference because the dog that has not yet barked in terms of the Conservatives' pain over Brexit are Conservative Remainers, right? If you are Nicky Morgan, right, you're looking at Boris Johnson popping up and going, rah, rah, ba rah, 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 you know, no Norway stumble. then in fact, actually, if you are a, a leaver who wanted a Norway option, you're also not that thrilled.
1: But- I agree with you, because there were a lot of Labour MPs, I felt, who either stayed away altogether from Labour Conference or kept an extremely low profile, didn't really particularly speak at fringes or anything like that. So actually, the number of people talking about, you know, the single market and things like that and, and, and expressing unhappiness with Labour's fudge was relatively low. No, but it's a bit more of a critical issue for, for Tory Remainers
0: Yeah, I mean also I think in some ways The, the row over Labour's Brexit policy is a bit of a, a red herring And it's one of those, those occasions where I'm going to use the word leadership and Labour To mean two slightly different things because there's an awful lot of focus on what the leadership's policy is, and obviously their official policy is, is basically to have a deep breath and then have a slightly less hard Brexit than the Conservatives, and the Customs Union in particular is very important in terms of the options as far as the Irish border go, but to then have a fairly drastic breach from the European Union. But if Jeremy Corbyn turned around tomorrow and went, actually my, my position is to fight for our membership of the single market... A large chunk of Labour MPs who are currently voting with party policy would start voting against party mm-hmm. policy. So that's the Labour position. as opposed The Labour position is to have a hard Brexit. You know, to hope they can get some kind of deal on immigration, which means they don't have to have a hard Brexit. But basically it's to have a hard Brexit because they think they need to have uh, some kind of action on free movement of Labour. And even the people who are incredibly pro-immigration, there is quite a, a large number of people who basically are like, look, but we clearly fought a referendum going the economy will fall in if you restrict immigration. People went, well, we want to restrict immigration. Therefore, we can't go, well, no, the economy will fall in, so we're going to stay in the single market.
1: For me, one of the really interesting things, and you've picked up on it in your kind of five things you've learned from conference, is is the change in attitude of business. So I did the Federation of Small Businesses Fringe with John McDonnell, Shadow Chancellor, and it was striking how much of a rapport there was between him and Martin Mctakers the elected head of that organisation you know they they've had lots of conversations quite obviously and actually he was up on the details of things about productivity and the problems we have there about you know 5g coverage about super fast broadband all that kind of stuff that actually is incredibly dull to most people but in terms of businesses asks and actually we were talking about you know the corporation tax whether or not there would be an exemption for small businesses or whether from the rise from the corporation tax from 19 percent to 26 percent, or whether or not that would be you know it would be a much lower rise as was set out in the manifesto it did also however point to a, a slight issue with labour's offer at the last election which was that Corbyn went to the Federation of Small Business conference in April and said, "Oh, it's going to stay at 19 percent for small businesses. It'll only be for big businesses. It will rise." And then the Labour manifesto said that it would rise for small businesses. So there, what? Well, and I think I can think of several other examples like that. You know, and, and to be fair to them, they put that manifesto together in a tearing hurry, and actually there wasn't really time in that short campaign to scrutinise Labour's policy stuff in in really gritty detail. And, and no one kind of thought that it mattered really. You know, the whole election was fought on the basis that you know, we didn't really need to interrogate each promise because they weren't going to happen. And I don't think that will be the same next time.
0: Well, no, I mean, that's going to be the other f- interesting thing about the NEC, which is now back to hung because at this conference, a new chair and deputy chair were elected. The chair is a more valuable piece as far as the NEC and voting whether or not things are out of order than it is than having the uh, majority on there. So there is now a Corbynite chair and deputy chair, which means that they're two-vote lead has turned into a hung one but as our expectation is not the Corbinites will sweep the board in the three extra NEC places which will be elected in the autumn further on in the autumn uh, then that uh, that majority will, will be restored. And in any case, the strategic interest of most of the swing voters on the NEC is to vote with the leadership where possible. So actually there is kind of a Corbynite majority. Which
1: ties anyway. into another big story of this conference, and I think it's something that both you and I have touched on and stuff that we've written about, the organisational heft of Corbyn's wing of the party now, particularly momentum in terms of their their app building was exceptional they had a conference app which you know told you which motions to vote for it gave you a really good guide to all the fringe listings all the kind of stuff that you would think would have been done already and done really well by a party and yet you know you're still relying on kind of printed booklets really
0: well they, they Labour do have a conference app it's just very slow and obviously because it's the official one it know, yeah, you can't use it to do whipping i do think there's been a little bit of kind of scoreboard journalism and i've probably engaged in some of it myself about Momentum's organisational successes. There are lots of places which have elected delegates who came to vote for the rule changes who might be pro-European but didn't want to vote on Brexit because they voted with the Momentum line on Brexit because they knew then it would trigger a pain point for the party and for Jeremy Corbyn and they wanted that not to happen. Where actually in those parts of the country Momentum is a bit of a shambles uh to be frank right there are large parts of it where because it kind of has semi by accident developed a kind of quasi parallel structure with the rest of the labor party so you have like
1: yeah, but I think what they happy. did with that Brexit so, vote is that they made it look like that. To having not having that vote was the was the Corbyn loyalist thing to do. They got that message out very successfully, and that's what you're talking about, which is what affected other people who then thought, "We think the next election is going to be four year, four or five years away. So why we why would we have this pointless discussion? That's only going to expose our divisions."
0: Yeah, but my my point is is the momentum centrally is very well organised. But in an odd way, the only reason why it mattered that they had got out what the Corbyn loyalists thing was is they had already done an, an, a very good job at winning delegate elections where actually although the, the center of momentum is well organized the periphery is not you can see that in one of the other interesting sort of straws in the wind about you know the balance of power in labor local councillors are in the, at the moment being reselected because all local councillors in labor have to go through a, a mandatory reselection process i mean obviously so do labor mps but a an open reselection process it's easier to deselect a councillor and actually very few of them have been including councillors who are in places where because of their budget cuts they have been having to do fairly right-wing things anyway although there are some places where we expect there will be a large chunk of deselections Haringey being one but yeah I think some of it is is actually just about the ideological shift in some parts of the country in the Labour Party though obviously the fact that their app is very good that they do have far and away I'd say the most impressive set of staff the best messaging of uh, any faction at the moment but yeah I'm...
1: and a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of just digital skills in terms of that they've got you know young interested people who are running on enthusiasm and and I think you know that's that was so I went down to them a couple of different of the momentum spaces and you know it was it was really impressive to see what they had going on and i uh, I've written this week that I sort of wonder if some of the bits about the meme wall and the kind of clay pots and all that kind of stuff and the acid Corbinism session is I almost wonder if it's almost deliberate in a way that they kind of quite like to feel that they're luring journalists into a sort of trap to write about them in that way because of the two ways that they could be presented. Are either as kind of oh look at these crazy young people and their you know and their memes, or it could be look at this sinister hard left faction that 's like all its data is owned and controlled by one guy and it 's trying to take over the party, so I think probably of those two you would always pick like acid Corbynism and loll well, as, uh, as your public image
0: the other thing to remember isn't the world transformed and momentum are increasingly separate. I was talking to a senior official in a major pro-Corbyn trade union, about this. And, yeah, they said, well, the great thing now is the World Transformed is kind of its own set of programme Unite must
1: have put a a bit of money behind it because there was lots of Unite merch there as well.
0: Yeah, the World Transformed is basically its own separate programme of events. And then, um, you know, the momentum is now... And this is one of the other reasons why they are doing better, is doing a much... Well, it's now doing two things much more... The first, of course, which will be the thing that if you are a podcast listener, you are more likely to have seen, which is that they are effectively um, operating as one of um, the United Kingdom's first super PACs, right? They do their great shareable videos. But the other is they are acting as a factional organization much more. So, I mean, the interesting thing is, in some ways, although the politics of all the people involved are are the same, the events team and the politics stuff are increasingly separate.
1: Okay, well, we'll come back after this and talk about Jeremy Corbyn's speech specifically. Life is full of what ifs,
0: some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
1: So let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn's speech, which kind of crowned capped Labour Party conference shall we say okay um, tell me if I'm being unfair it was too long it had a bit too much of you're great no you're great now here's another person who's great you're great which I guess was cathartic and necessary like that was in tune with the, the feeling of the conference which was like let's all get together and celebrate the fact we didn't get walloped like we thought we were going to get walloped but there was a strange thing of going through the conference of re-announcing stuff that was in the manifesto with a slight that Sort of idea as if it was new and just set... and the idea was that just being able to say it more confidently was kind of the story. So the the, the nationalisation stuff, for example, got a lot of write-ups, but that was all in the the manifesto. And lots of the stuff that Jeremy Corbyn announced today about housing was kind of edging towards that in the in the manifesto. Although not, I don't think he specifically promised rent controls. Or I think rent Ed, control Ed, isn't. Ed, Ed Miliband had a kind of version of that, which I, kind
0: of fair stuff for renters. And I mean.
1: And they did other stuff for renters too, right? That, so I actually... mean, I don't want to get
0: pulled into the rent control check yet because I'll just vanish into a weird rabbit warren about housing policy. Uh,
1: <laughs> Wasn't the speech quite Milibandy, though?
0: But the thing is, I think that's because the conference speech format is innately bad. Corbyn has only done. Well, so this was his best performance. However, in terms of the actual speech, I'd say Corbyn has only done one good one, which was last year's.
1: It wasn't bad. I mean, that was the thing. It was it, he, you know, he delivered it in a totally plausible, competent way. Which, given for somebody who's only been leader for two years and kind of came from nowhere, like he has been a quick learner in that sense of those leadership skills.
0: And Ed, I think, only really did. Predators versus producers was quite good. Predators versus producers was good. It actually did work and have a beginning, middle. Like the th- the problem is because so one of the the good changes that uh, the leadership brought in last year was moving it to the last day which means that you don't have that weird thing of Labour conference kind of sort of like...
1: Dribbling away. Dribbling away. Mm.
0: And that does mean there's more energy around the last day and there's sort of energy around the leader's speech. However, the leader's speech is still too long to do well, particularly if... How can I put this? Particularly if your if political style is not uh, one of a political explainer, as it were, right? Blair was very good at conference speeches because he basically would do the like here is the issue and the issue is this and this is the challenge and as a result the challenge we do x and ed was very good at doing conference which is because he was very wonkish so he'd do the kind of like here is the problem and as so and so says and so and so and how do we bring these together right gordon brown was very good at the shorter chance of the slot because he basically did them like a sermon and yeah and, and that worked very well like there's a reason why you know organised religion has has gone on for so long, the sermon format works.
1: There were some Um, good bits in the Corbyn speech, though. But Gordon
0: Brown never did, with the exception of the financial crisis speech, where he basically got to do like a big, like, I'm going to explain what's going on. Never really did a good conference speech because the format is too long.
1: The, but the um, best parts of the Corbyn speech were the bit about extractive capitalism and the bit about Grenfell and Grenfell kind of standing as a monument to a broken society. And I thought he he framed that, which is his, you know, his and John MacDonald's premise about what they want to do with the Labour Party, quite well, right? Which is that they just they don't want to just nibble around the edges of capitalism. They want to fundamentally involve the state more in people's lives. And in, in, because they think that that will mean that, you know, that actually that will, they think that will mean greater control for people and greater democratic accountability. So having a state run water company, for example, means that you know who to complain to when something goes wrong. And actually it's maximizing value for customers rather than for shareholders. And I thought he did quite a good job of explaining that stuff, like why his status vision is, as he sees it, kind of populist and giving power back to ordinary people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. Like I said, all of those caveats I just had aside, in, in terms of, for a genre of speech, I don't think it can can, can actually ever really work. Or at least doesn't work unless you have two very specific styles of giving a speech. I think it didn't work as well as it is possible for it not to work. I don't think it didn't work as, as I, whereas last year's I think actually worked, but it's hard to do that again. I think the interesting thing in terms of the policy stuff, so the rent control stuff is new. I haven't looked again at the detail yet. Well, I'm a
1: bit worried about the rent control stuff because shelter, I think, are a bit queasy on it. And actually, lots of left wing economists are a bit bleh about it and also that his talk about gentrification I find quite worrying because he was talking about saying we want communities to have to approve new developments. Well I kind of see the point of that as a as a policy lever because the obvious example is somewhere like the Haygate estate in Elephant Castle essentially where people got chucked out with the promise that this new development was going to bring all this great stuff to them and what well, are we going to say section 120 all the stuff about the requirement for new affordable housing gets whittled away and whittled away and actually what you end up happening is a lot of people get evicted from their homes and long established communities and basically a kind of load of yuppies move in so I kind of see the premise of that and I do agree with him with that but one of the massive problems that we have with housing in this country is essentially the fact the veto that people already have through the planning system and the fact that nebulously 200,000 people need a house is up against the fact that 50 people who already have a house can you know fight every step of the way to stop more housing being built next to them. So I'm I'm concerned about that as a as a policy challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean the the odd thing about it is it is oddly similar to the Adam Smith Institute's proposals for planning reform where you can both, you can see what they're both doing is you tackle tackling the same problem right which is basically the average British person wants to live in a townhouse right. They're happy not to live in all of a townhouse, but they want to live in a six-story... Like a mansion block, a right? They don't want to live in a high-rise, yeah, they don't want to live in a flat. kind of quasi-Georgian-style uh, townhouse. Now, the brilliant thing is because our housing density is so low, you can actually achieve this aspiration for, for most people and have a mixture of social and rented housing, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and fix the housing market that way as a building solution. The problem that both the ASI and Corbyn are, have grappled with, and they both come to a weirdly similar solution, is this problem of the local veto. Now, weirdly, both of them seem to go like, well, we'll give people a vote, but we'll give them some guarantees, and then magic will happen, and these things will be passed. My concern, practically, with the Corbyn policy is it won't work the way that he thinks it will. That actually, mostly, in places where where the uh, assurances have not been met about, oh, you will be able to move back in. Oh, I know when I said you will be able to move back into something else in the same area. By something else similar, I meant something completely different. And by and the Kent. same area, <laughs> I meant Kent, yeah. And and basically, my instinct is I, I can't think of an example of any of the abuses of the current system where I don't think the assurances given before would have been enough for people not to vote uh, on it Unless your opinion, and I can see how some people would say this about both the ASI and Corbyn schemes, is that actually if you give people a vote, uh, they are just not going to. I, I mean, housing is one of the things where I just do sort of go for the like full on status thing. And actually, the only way to guarantee that people who already live somewhere will not lose out is for the government to quite literally force you know, something with the exact same dimensions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And to, uh, if not build it directly themselves, at least I just think you have to have a level of yeah. That's in the trouble is I
1: think that direct building is really, but it's phenomenally expensive. You can see why well, they don't want to do it. But what you've ended up with, and he mentioned this, which is an Ed Miliband theme, is land banking and developers sitting on on properties hoping to sort of speculate on the on the values going up. But also about the systematic abuse of Section one hundred and twenty, and about the idea that actually you know you kind of no one ever offers to build more social housing because a a project's ended up being more profitable than they thought instead they'll keep coming back and back saying oh it's can we just have a few slightly fewer affordable homes in this development and then all of a sudden you've got and and actually afford like i was looking at affordable homes in islington when we were up in our old office it was by the old site of the old post office there and actually an affordable rent because it's a percentage of market rent if the market rents loopily high then the affordable rent is loopily high it's not the same as a social housing rent which is actually genuinely
0: ...to go down the the rabbit warren of of rent control. Basically, every economist thinks that rent control doesn't work. However, the thing about the speech and the word rent control is it can mean a great deal of things, right? So it, for example, can mean we're actually going to change tenants. So we're going to do some of the things that Will Tanner, former aide to Theresa May, suggested doing in his debut I column... Where you basically just tilt the, because our, our whole rental market is based on the idea that most of the people who rent are students and twenty and twenty one year old professionals who leave anyway. So you need to give the landlord a great deal of regulatory protection because actually the the person they're renting on is going to leave anyway. And but the thing is, if you want to sell that electorally, it you there's a whole package of things you could do that. Which if I were advising a political leader, I would say let's just call this rent control. Mm. Then there's your actual, like, it may not rise below X percent, it must do Y, which we know has perverse outcomes and does not work the way that...
1: I've seen friends. Yeah,
0: the way that you you would think it does. However, yeah, as as I've said, because it's not entirely clear from the speech, and I haven't looked at the policy yet, whether or not he is actually proposing actual rent control, or a bit like the PFI speech, where they kind of went, yeah, we'll take them all back but actually what they meant was we will look through and work out which ones have got punitive break clauses and which ones don't.
1: Yeah, I thought it was an interesting speech from the point of view of its confidence. He did a bit in the middle, like he always does the Trumpy bit in the middle where he says how beastly the MSM are. Uh, but it was luckily it was in the middle rather than at the end when he was doing stump speeches in his second leadership campaign. It always came at the beginning because it was a thing that fired up the audience. And I guess now it's a sign that he's got a lot of other applause lines that he so he doesn't necessarily need to do the kind of two minute hate about the pundits quite as much. I so mean, that's think, that. Yeah, that was an interesting reflection too.
0: I always get a bit me- about the Trump comparison because the thing is right is although there are lots of things with which I disagree about the present Labour leadership and there are lots of legitimate criticisms to be made of it, ultimately the US media is not biased against the Republican Party. Whereas the British media kind of is biased against the Labour Party. The US media
1: is definitely biased against Trump, but I would just say kind of correctly so, because it just says that all of his policies are awful, his opinions are terrible, and he can't Um, achieve any of them. But I I think the mechanism of them works exactly the same way, which is about an anti-elitist message, which is another theme that went all the way through the speech, is anti-elitism and actually the media are kind of always portrayed as being part of that elite so i think mechanistically it does a us versus them thing that people is very energizing yeah but, i mean
0: i wouldn't do it because i think as we are now demonstrating journalists love to talk about themselves yeah. every second a journalist is talking about themselves they're not talking about your policy issues which is where you actually move votes etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah it's just me <laughs>
1: And now a section we like to call...
0: You ask us.
1: And this week you've asked us about the war games that Labour is doing, about, uh, which were reported as kind of, John McDonnell prepares for Labour run on the pound. And I have to say, luckily I was too busy to get involved in a beef war. But I did find watching Tory MPs saying like, ha 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 ha, ha, ha. Labour are having to prepare for what happens if they tank the pound. And I wanted to go, do you know what has genuinely actually tanked the pound? Brexit. So, wind your neck in. But were they right to talk about that, Stephen?
0: Well, I think they were definitely right to be wargaming it. There are many, many reasons to believe that the next Labour government will inherit economic chaos. There are other reasons to believe that it may then uh, in of itself, just by arriving in office, be the trigger for sovereign flight and various other issues. So it makes sense to do it. So my understanding is that the, one of the reasons why Mcdonald expressly mentioned it was that Rebecca Long-Bailey had been asked a question at a, a roundtable about tanking uh, the pound, and her response was, does anyone have any other questions? Obviously, they didn't have any other questions because they were like, well, now you've con- said, conceded you don't have an answer. I think ultimately it's better to go of course we are planning for you know all number of contingencies however were i advising the labour leadership the other thing i would be thinking about is given the surely labour's best chance of taking office and also i think just looking at the brexit talks the most likely outcome isn't the brexit talks end badly and you inherit economic chaos Um, Obviously, in terms of getting its vote out, inspiring people, you don't want a situation where Corbyn is saying, so a large chunk of this manifesto we might not be able to do because we might just be cleaning up this mess we've inherited. But you do kind of need to start getting your counter narrative in early. Uh, I mean, let's say, again, I think it's more likely... Than yeah, I know what you mean. You you could,
1: I can see a situation in which, actually, do you know what, they just don't have the money to repeal um, tuition fees, to abolish tuition fees, right?
0: Yeah, and all... I mean, last thing is... And then it, that's
1: either a great betrayal, or you do what the Tories are very successfully to Gordon Brown and say, we're blaming it on the mess that Labour left us with. And yeah, in or if, if
0: you arrive and there is, you know, a massive run on the pound because the bond markets go... ah. Uh, John McDonnell in the Treasury. And if the bond markets, I assume, will already be feeling fairly nervous about the United Kingdom as in terms of its seaworthiness because of the way that Brexit has panned out. So there are lots and lots of uh, things which might prevent a Labour government doing all of its things, not least if a bunch of, of young graduates decide to leave, then your ability to pay for the tuition fee. Cut by taxing upper earners vanishes if there are fewer upper earners when you come into office. So I think it makes a lot of sense to find ways of discreetly going, <clears throat> guys, uh, FYI. I think the danger with specifics, and this doesn't seem to be where any of the media line of inquiry has gone yet. Is it does raise the inevitable question of, well, are you wargaming the consequences of people's decision to vote to leave the European Union? Because the slight difficulty, I mean, less so for Jeremy and John themselves because of where their long standing politics are, but for the leadership more broadly and for the kind of overall Labour Party project, is most people involved in it do not think the Brexit decision was the right one.
1: Not the- is the IFS. Which yeah says it's going to cost us three hundred million pounds. But the difference is
0: the right? IFS doesn't have to get uh, re-elected, right? They're, they're <laughs> one one of the challenges uh, for a Labour government, if there is as I expect one, will be not having the moment when on TV someone turns around and goes, "Yeah, but you you guys voted for it, so yeah, what do you, you want nodded from it me?" True. Yeah,
1: um, like yeah, I think that makes sense, and also I do think that it also if the the what the difficulty of their Brexit fudge position if they were an overtly anti-Brexit party they'd be able to say do you know what else the government hasn't wargamed no deal like where are these customs staff where are these people who are going to inspect beef at the uh, you know the channel tunnel but they kind of can't lean too heavily on the prospect of how terrible an idea Brexit is when they're still trying to play that one foot in each camp
0: but well I think if they were anti-Brexit party they would have lost you know Ashfield
1: it's true yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's a good, an answer. Is, yes, they were right to talk about the fact that they had war game, but probably they were wrong to go into specifics.
0: Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Our music is Devil by the devil and is licensed by Creative Commons. Do follow all of the NS podcasts on at NS podcasts for more podcast joys. Plus a secret project coming soon from me.